We can just let this one ride, man. <laughs> I mean, no one's heard from us in a couple months anyway, so... Uh, yeah, so. I know. So I thought in honor of that hiatus, <laughs> which we deserved, um, I would kind of kick us off with one of my favorite new bands, the Black Pumas. Um, We've used them before, right? Haven't you referenced them before? I have before, yeah, with actually another Spanish producer. Um, but they've actually really kind of taken off. And I first heard them when I was driving around one afternoon listening to the show called The Takeaway in NPR. And they, she had interviewed uh, the singer, uh, Eric Burton. And not only did I love his music and his voice, and it was so captivating, I really loved his persona, um, his attitude uh, towards songwriting, towards life. And then I really just dove into these guys. And you know why I kind of picked it today, not just because I think it's a really cool song, but, and it's got such a great vibe to it. Um, it does remind me in many ways of these wines because you know, they're a modern band, but you know, sonically, stylistically, there's something so classic about them. Uh, you, the sound sounds timeless. It sounds like something that could have been recorded in the late 60s, early to mid 70s. Um, oftentimes when you have younger musicians and bands that are kind of writing in a retro style, the production is very different and it's lush and it's round and it's rich, but there's something so angular about this. So uh, the main two players in this is Eric Burton, the singer, and um, Adrian Casada, who's a guitar player. And you know, if you listen to the music, his uh, guitar is playing a Telecaster, which traditionally was like the country sound, has a twang to it. Reminds me a lot of you know the acidity and the minerality within these wines. Um, he definitely has a very sweet, soulful voice, but he captures almost this classic Aaron Neville slash Nina Simone enunciation with a little bit of like the guess who kind of uh, gravel in his voice, which reminds me of the tannic structure, especially within the reds. Um, and it's yeah, they're really cool. Uh, at a certain point, like you know, the piano's playing and it sounds like popcorn and it pops like acid and, and minerality and fruit and, and to me the wines are kind of the same way. They are uh, classic old school wines from one of my favorite winemakers. One of the reasons why I'm in this industry actually are these wines and you know there's a couple new interpretations of of classic Spain and by the way. Uh, welcome to Bottom of the Bottle. There you go. I was gonna say even though we went on a couple month hiatus, we, we still Remembered to forget to introduce exactly. Ourselves. It's almost like we intend to forget. Pretty much, yeah. That's what we do. <laughs> so uh, I know anyone watching or listening is like, we stopped clearly because I picked the song last time, and I just blew your mind <clears throat> so much that we just had to go away for two months. You needed time to recover. You know, I actually, you did. What was the name of the band again? Crimudgeon. What was uh, it? What was it? Crimbin. 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 So I actually had started listening to them. I can never pronounce it, but I, you know, yeah. somewhat spell it. And uh, there, there's actually a really great collaboration they did with. And I was going to pick one of the songs. <clears throat> it's a collaboration with uh, Leon Bridges, and it has kind of the same style. Like his solo music sounds like Motown from the the uh, '60s. Um, but then they do some really cool music together with that, you know beautiful instrumentation that they do where you know, the guitar I'm pretty sure he's using the hollow body so it has this kind of echoey brash kind of almost trumpet horn sound to it 
um, with Leanne Bridges' song. It's, it's a song called Texas Sun, so I highly recommend listening to that. Maybe we'll start with that one day. But awesome. But I've been listening to that over and over again. I was going to do that one, um, but I couldn't pronounce the name it's of okay. the band. So. Right. I probably can't doubt it. I'm probably saying it wrong. <laughs> Luckily, they won't listen to this and get mad and get mad pronounced it wrong. Yeah, no, uh, so really quick, the, the hiatus, because it, it is, I can't be drinking right now. I had a little uh, stomach issue that, that sidelined me for a little bit. So, I, and I'm all medicated, so I, I, I can't drink. Yeah, um, so I can taste though, which I will, I have to spit, but I can I, I, I can taste. So I'm gonna be facil facilitating. So this is gonna be the Manny show today with me just kind of inquiring because, um, you know, we've heard to introduce ourselves too. He's Manny Gonzalez and I'm Adam Cataldo. See, we're just, it's back to like the first show. We forgot <laughs> to do everything. We're still but, figuring it out. You know, and which after, you know, I don't know, 17 recordings, why would you still need to be figuring it out? Exactly. But, but we do. So yeah. it's kind of who we are. So it's unfortunate that you're facilitating because I actually didn't prepare anything for, for this. So I don't really know what I'm talking about. Good night, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> no, so, um, so I, you know, I wanted to talk about some really cool Spanish wines. Um, in particular, the wines from, from Alejandro Fernandez, who is instrumental in creating the appellation of Ribera del Duero, uh, which is known for some of the most beautiful and rustic and more Bordeaux-style Tempranillos, where Rioja, to me, always reminds me a little bit of Burgundy. It's a little rounder, it's a little more floral. Um, here, they're really angular and dark and brooding. Um, I worked in a Spanish restaurant back in 2000, 2001, so because I'm very old. and. Um, I'm a half a century old, actually, officially, but uh, I had fallen in love with, with specifically the wines of Pinto Pasquera, which is the first winery created by Alejandro Fernandez in the 1970s. Um, and then, you know, there was a, like Muga, uh, Rioja Alta, um, Vega Cecilia, when you can afford it. Uh, you know, there's um, Falsatillo, so there are a handful of producers that just really stuck to me. and. I fell so much in love with the wines of Alejandro Fernandez that when he passed away and I was redoing my guitar, I was uh, sanding it down and, and staining it a more of like a natural wood color rather than the stupid cherry red that I thought was cool in the 90s. <laughs> and I took a bottle of Pescara and tried to make a syrup out of it, which didn't really work. It just evaporated. Uh, but I added it to a water-based stain and I had uh, lacquered my guitar with that. So. Um, even though you can't see it, I know it's there, and now everyone all, now about a hundred people, um, in 22 countries. Right. So someone exactly. in Saudi Arabia is going to be like, wow, that's really cool. Um, so, you know, Alejandro is a really historic figure in, in winemaking. The reason why um, the region of Rivera del Duero has an actual Appalachian status has to do with a lot of his work towards Tempranillo and also Vega Cecilia. Um, you know, they didn't get their Appalachian status until 1982. So relatively young, um, when you think about Rioja getting an Appalachian, the designated Appalachian status in the 1920s, actually before France really sure. developed the AOC system. Um, you know, and, and to me, they're just classic Spain with a little twist. And we're gonna be talking about three of his wines, not from Pascara. The first one is gonna be a white wine, we'll touch on in a second from a, a winery called uh, El Vinculo, which means the link, in La Mancha, and it's the fourth most widely planted grape in the world. It used to be the first up until about 10 years ago, uh, and it's a wacky grape that really only grows here. I mean, there's almost about 500 
thousand acres planted this in in Castileon in, in the heart of Spain and what they call the Meseta. Um, and to think about just the amount of size, first of all, well, I guess yeah, I'll just get into it. Why not? La Mancha is what they call. Um, what this is like where Don Quixote came from. Uh, this is like the story that Cervantes wrote. Um, the symbol. Every wine region in Spain has a symbol in the back, and in La Mancha, it is Don Quixote. Um, but it represents around forty-nine and a half percent of all vines planted in Spain. Spain is the largest country when it comes to land under vine. Not the, they're the third largest producer of wine, but they produce a lot of grapes here. Um, and it's crazy to think that this wacky grape that's about a uh, half a million acres is, there's more of that planted than all the grapes in Napa combined or in Sonoma. Um, I think California is around 700,000 acres planted. The United States around 900,000 acres. Um, and so the fact that this one grape is half of the production of the entirety of the United States is it's kind of mind-blowing um, So yeah, so we have that and then uh, another estate that he founded in 85 called Fernando de Asta um, But uh, yeah, so they're just really really cool wines, but let's kind of I guess dive into the in the first one. <laughs> but before you go there, I'm, I'm curious because you, you made the comparison with, with Burgundy and Bordeaux and whatnot with the, with the regions. Spain obviously been making wine for a really long time. Right? In regards to the DOs, we didn't have AOCs in, in France until whatever it was, 1928 or 9, I can't. Um, I'm not as learned as many, I forget these things. <laughs> so, but it's. Everyone knew what Burgundy was, everyone knew what Champagne was, everyone knew what Bordeaux was, and so on. Was Ribeiro del Duero, was that, is it the same thing where it was a region that kind of established itself, you know, for a few hundred years beforehand and people knew and were excited about, and then it just got its DO status late for whatever reason, or was it just kind of there? It, it was just kind of there. It was actually okay. a region that was known for That's a lot of bulk production, like very simple country wines. Um, and it was really the big change started in the 1860s when a guy by the name of Don Eloy Chavez, and he was a creator of Vega Sicilia. I always forget his middle middle name, but um, in the 1960s he went to Bordeaux to learn how to make wine, and came back to uh, Rivera and started making wine there and created the Vega Sicilia winery in 1864, um, implementing you know Tempranillo as a main varietal, but also using Cabernet Sauvignon, which is really unusual in sure. Spain at the time. Um, and made, use the techniques that they would use in Bordeaux and made some stellar wines. But for the most part, the region was really known for very simple, simple, um, plunk, bulk wines. Uh, and in the 1970s, when Alejandro uh, founded his winery, Pascara, in 71, he really believed that Tempranillo was kind of the, the center of the universe for Spain. And um, officially now it actually is the most widely planted grape. It wasn't for a while, but, uh, so he just stayed with 100% Tempranillo. His wines became extremely well known. Um, in 85, I think Robert Parker called him one of the greatest winemakers of all time. So that's really when it happened. Uh, I mean, Vega Sicilia is, is I wish we sold that wine, but um, you know, when you get to wines at that level, that price point, they're also kind of a nightmare sure. to deal with. Yeah. Because 
we're sitting in the warehouse and not everyone knows it and you have to go to like three or four people and they buy it but they always want a deal because you know that's, yeah, that's how like high-end buyers tend to work you know but um but alejandro's wines i think were really instrumental in, in creating the appellation itself because rioja was was known i mean forever um the first writings in spanish was by this guy by the name of uh, uh Bartolomeo, and he was uh, Gonzalo de Bartolomeo. He was a monk um, and wrote a poem called uh, Vida de San Mayon, um, The Life of San Semelan. And in it, he talks about the wines of, of Rioja. Um, so the first writings in Spanish, because before that, if you can write or read, it was all in Latin. Sure. Um, actually, talk about the wines of Rioja. It was the first wine region, one of the first wine regions in the world to have a uh, demarcated zone. Um, within the country, like legally within the country of Spain, it had its own logo, they had their own rules in terms of what varietals you can use. Um, you couldn't get grapes out of certain zones. Um, and that was really the forefront for Spanish winemaking forever, and still is, I think, in a lot of ways. But Rivera really had to catch up, and within the same way that Napa Valley. I was, I was going to ask, it's about the same time period. Yeah, it's, and now you're looking at wines that oftentimes can be much, much more expensive and highly regarded by wine connoisseurs than the wines of Rioja. And, I mean, my heart's still in, in Rioja in many ways, but um, it's, a, it's a real vital, important region that's really just becoming discovered now. That's awesome. Yeah. That's awesome. See? Facilitation. <laughs> See? We can do it. You don't need me to talk. I can just ask me any questions and we can keep going. So, uh, yeah, let's talk about the first wine. So, yeah. Um, this color is gorgeous. Yeah, so this is the, the Aran grape, um, and it's the wine itself is called Alecaran. Um, Aran is the grape. Um, Haran comes from Ale. Oh, no, sorry, Ale comes from Alejandro, and Aran is the grape. So Alecaran. Um, this is a, an estate they purchased in 1999. Um, still dedicated towards Tempranillo and all of of the families, well he's passed away now, but all of the family's wines um, are all um, uh, Tempranillo, 100%, with the exception of this one wine. And they found one vineyard, and this is a, uh, a Pajare La Gosa, uh, Golosa is the vineyard, and it's a super high altitude, I mean, it's like 700 meters above sea level. Like that's getting close to Andy's um, you know, level in terms of how high it is. But it's a, it's a flat plain. So it's what they call the Maceta in here. There's a saying in La Mancha that it's uh, nine months of winter and three months of inferno. <coughs> but still, the Darnell shift is real intense because there's no influence of any body of water at all, other than like the rivers that run through it. So your daytime temperatures get really hot, which obviously produces a lot of fruit, but nighttime gets really cold. Um, and so it puts a lot of stress on the vines and builds the acid. Um, the soils here are mostly limestone, but like super compact actually to break up the soils. And the way they actually plant vines here, it's a really, it's a really cool pattern. It's like a, they plant it like a checkerboard. It's called uh, Marco Real. So if you imagine looking at a checkerboard, all the black dots are where all the, the vines are planted. And it's basically a way to kind of help protect from the heat, but also um, I think a way to help spread out the, the roots so they can actually get more nutrients. Um, so, so competing here for nutrients is bad because it's so dry. It's so dry, yeah, yeah, and um, a very challenging place to actually do anything. Um, it's one of the most interesting things because we, we hear all the time you have to stress the vine, right? I mean, so for to turn it out a little bit here, 
you know, the, 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 the grape does better when it can't thrive. It needs to, if you want quality fruit, you need it to be stressed a little bit. You need to be fighting for nutrients. And it's almost the exact opposite in this, in the sense is that we need it to thrive because if it doesn't, it's not going to get, exactly. it's not going to get ripe enough. So it's just an example of how you hear something about wine once and uh, you go, oh, that must be, that, that, that's, that makes sense. That's gospel. Cool. And nothing is 100 percent because in this area it's it's, it's completely different it's cool. yeah yeah and even the aging process of this is, is really unique so it's um the this wine in many ways drinks like a red it's actually a like, kind of perfect cellar temperature i left them all in my car last night because i figured it wasn't gonna be that cold um which i feel like is a problem by the way i have to mention in february in new england that it's like 55 60 degrees and everyone's thinking that it's fantastic and like you realize that july is going to be awful if it's this warm now wait till july when it's humid um i would venture to guess that it's probably more pleasant there i know definitely <laughs> it's in the south of spain during heat waves than it is being in new england uh, during a heat wave but um but it definitely drinks more like a red wine so it spends uh, a year and a half in uh, french oak which is also a departure for them because traditionally the wines are all aged in American oak with the exception of very special cuvées um, you know the Grand Reservas that, that they oftentimes don't even say Grand Reserva on them but it's like they're um, you know special release they only do once every 10-15 years um, they'll use French oak and up until this recent vintage they also used American oak which really gave it this rustic edge uh, but this is 18 months in French oak, um, in, in specifically Barrique, uh, which legally carry the term Crianza, or Reserva, or Grand Reserva in Spain, you have to use that specific size barrel. So this is labeled as a Crianza, um, it's a 2019 vintage, so it's a year and a half in oak, and then six months in the bottle until release. And um, so just to kind of break down quickly the labeling when it comes to Spanish wines, because in the United States or in France, a reserve means can, nothing. Can I stop you really quick yeah. before you keep going? Is the, because I don't know a lot about this grape. So I already, you know, bragged about the color being gorgeous. It's very deep. Mm -hmm. Is that the grape? Is that the 18 months in oak? Is yes. that a combination of the two? If, if we put this, if, if this was in stainless steel, would it look pale yellow what, what do we think is, is going on here? yeah it would, it would be much more of a lighter color it's a grape that is for being the fourth most widely planted grape and the second most widely planted grape in Spain it is a wine that is always made very simple plunk that was the goal or to make brandy um, and oftentimes the brandy or what they call aguadiente that the um, the distilled spirit that fortifies sherry would oftentimes be um, this grape from this area. <laughs> so it's usually like if you were having lunch in, in uh, uh, Ciudad Real, which is one of the main cities in, in La Mancha, and you go get the menu for lunch because it's always like a three course and you get a bottle of wine, it would be a bottle of the Aaron grape that's just like you're. Wow. Quaffable, yeah, like your, your kind of entry-level $5 a bottle Pinot Grigio that 
you know, is never going to rock the world, but maybe it's something you have at weddings, like it's just simple. Yeah. Um, that's what the wine was. But they found this one parcel that was super high elevation um, from the single vineyard that made that he believed could make an exceptional wine. Uh, but that color is coming from the from the oak. Actually, I have one account that's been pouring this, and the, they have it on their orange wine section. And oh, I'm like, okay. it's, it's not it's not an orange wine because orange wine is skin contact. This sure. is, you know, maybe there's some leaves, but not to that extent. But sure, you know, for some people, it kind of feels like that. Uh, but it's got this like beautiful butterscotch kind of like toffee. I mean, it's it's really interesting for it being that widely planted. So is is it like? Is this anything like Viera, where it's widely planted, but it's known as like nine other things throughout, you know, the France, Italy. So Viera, uh, or is it Uni Blanc in France, right? And, mm -hmm. and so is it like that, or is this just no. a Spanish variety? Yeah, it's just a okay. Spanish variety, yeah. Um, <clears throat> but, so just to kind of jump back into like labeling, um, so like in France and in California, the, the term reserve means nothing. Right? Mm -hmm. I mean, it can mean something, but it's winery dependent. Um, but oftentimes, it's a way to just sell more bottles. In Italy, it's something very specific uh, when you have a reserve up uh, on the label uh, in terms of aging, uh, yields, alcohol content, um, and uh, but it's specific to each appellation. So in Barolo, the um, reserva is. A different set of laws than Barbaresco, kind of similar, but but maybe in Barolo it's a little more oak aging than you would have in Barbaresco, or Brunello is different than Chianti in terms of the reserve of quality. In Spain, it's ubiquitous, ninety percent of the time. Um, so to be a Crianza for a white wine, it has to spend six months in oak and um, another year or so in the bottle at the winery. In for red wines, it legally has to be six months in oak and two years age at the winery. So six months in oak, a year and a half in the bottle. Uh, Reserva would be one year in oak and two years at the winery. And um, Grand Reserva would be two years in oak and three years at the wine. Three years in bottle, basically. Five years total in the winery. Um, or it could be two and a half and two and a half. Ribera and Rioja are different. Uh, we'll I'll talk about that when we get to that. But um, this technically could be aged or, or qualify as like a Grand Reserve white wine because of the amount of oak that it, it has. Uh, 2019 is the current release, which means that it was put into bottle in 2001 at some point, and um, like early 2001, and then. It's been in the winery for another year before it's shipped here. So, um, but they declassify it towards Crianza so they can release it when they're ready to release it. Sure. Um, and also, when you, you know, the minutiae minutia of, of labeling is in the United States in particular, but, but in Europe, the EU is still pretty strict. You can't just keep on changing the labels and, and the what's the criteria in the back of the label because you have oh, yeah. to register all that constantly to, to the government and pay taxes on it. So you just keep it like one simple thing. Uh, it's well, the, and just the <clears> other <throat> things too with the, with the I mean it's this is the the geeky business stuff, but a bottle of wine is, is a cylinder. What's the front? <laughs> right, <laughs> like it's the it's just one of those weird things, and they are if, if you it's a process to get label approval. 
So, and, and if, especially if you're importing, you have to get label approval in the EU and in the United States. You have to get it twice if you're going to export the same wine, right? Yeah. So, it's not, you just don't send the label in and get a check mark and be able to go back and, and do it. It's, so there's no point <laughs> in just screwing with the, uh, it, it makes a lot of sense, but it's, it's really hard to get label approval everywhere. So yeah, and even like sense. when they, when wineries do a label change, it's, it happened actually with Fincon Imperatrix. We didn't get the wines for a year mm -hmm. because, you know, Rioja is changing the, the, the <laughs> some of the criteria of like following basically the Burgundian model where you have basic region, zones, villages, and single vineyards. And to change all that in the label has to be approved. And so there was one full year with Imperatrice we couldn't get yeah. And it's, which kind of sucked because we just really built the brand where everyone's like, oh, this is a great wine for the money. Um, and then we're out, sorry, <laughs> you know. Yeah. And then, then you have to kind of after a year rebuild it. But, the joys um, of sales. Yeah. Absolutely. So it, it happens quite often. Um, it definitely happened with this wine. It was actually out for for a while as it was going through package change, and then obviously through the pandemic, mm -hmm. you know, shipping is still it's less so now, but it's still kind of a nightmare. Yeah. So that's um, that's it's the, the, the vinculo. It's a fun wine. It's one that it's works well decanted. <laughs> they actually even say that in the back, which is why I mentioned it, but. Let's say maybe a little colder than I have it now. Just because it's warm. So, I mean, it's not warm, warm. It's cool, but it does definitely feels a little hotter than it would if, it, if there was like a, maybe a good 30 minute show on it. The, the acid really shines, though. Yeah, I mean, yeah. it's really refreshing, even at the temperature it's at. So. Yeah. We're going to talk about Candela de Asa. So, this is an estate that he purchased in, I believe, 85. It's so Pascara is by a town called Valladolid and what's called the Golden Mile. So in Rivera del Duero, so Rivera means riverbank. The Duero is the river that becomes the Duro River in Portugal um, that goes all the way out to Porto where all the, the famous, um, what do they call it, Rivalas flow down and mm -hmm. they, they, with the port wines and barrels. Uh, but it starts in Spain and it starts actually just south of Rioja in um, a mountain ridge called Sistema Iberico. And it starts up in the foothills there, not far from from the heart of, of, of Rioja, and kind of goes south and west, and then kind of stretches down to this this area here. It's still a relatively high elevation. Uh, some of the highest vineyards in Spain are here, uh, and it's all kind of landlocked. So you have uh, Sierra Cantabria Mountains in the north. You have the Sistema Verico um, and uh, uh, Sierra Morenos in the south. You have um, uh, Montes Leon kind of in the, the northwest. And so, you know, the Darnell ship, once again, and the climate here is very extreme. So it can get really cold in the winter. It's one of the coldest places in Spain. But it can also become extremely warm and hot in the summertime. Um, but most of the vineyards are planted in what's called the Golden Mile. Um, and basically within the region of Rivira, uh, either a mile north or south of of the river is where the wineries are, and Pescara is right up on the very tail end of that in the uh, village called Valladolid. And this is a little further north in an area called Burgos, so at higher elevation, um, which once again, hot days, cool nights, fruit and acid in structure. Um, Condada is a, it's basically a chateau, and it is one of the few wineries in Spain that is the chateau um, style, true style, where you have 
the winery in the center and you have all the vineyards in one large estate surrounding it. And so that's where the wines are actually coming from one, oh, cool. not one vineyard, but, but one uh, contiguous estate. Um, once again, 100% Tempranillo and then uh, aged for 18 months in American oak and then, um, or, I'm sorry, no, uh, 14 months in American oak. Oh wow, that's actually kind of exciting because it used to be 18 months. So there's actually a new winemaker. Um, so after Alejandro died, his wife Esperanza and, and her daughters took over uh, running of the winery. So it's a female-owned winery. Um, but they had this young winemaker, I can't remember his name, but he's, he had, there's been a structure of how these wines have been made forever and he's starting to tweak it. I don't know how he convinced them to do it. Sure. Uh, but usually, like historically, the crianzas were all aged for 18 months in oak and then six months in the bottle, is what we would always say. <coughs> uh, but this is aged for 14 months in American oak and then um, 10 months in the bottle, before longer really, but before release, but once again, just to keep all the labels similar so they don't have to register anything. Sure. So it's right on that, that cusp of what a, a traditional crianza would be. Has to be at least six months in oak and has to be aged for two years in um, at the winery. Ribeiro del Duero and Rioja are different. That it has to be aged for one year in oak uh, to be a crianza. Um, the Grand Reservas have to be aged two and a half years in oak. Uh, reservas are still the same. I think it's one year, and um, and then the total of three years at the winery. But typically, what ends up happening is that people age the wine for twelve months. In oak in the 12 months in the bottle sure um, and then it's it's ready to go so this is right on the cusp technically but it definitely has been with the winery longer than that so we're we're landlocked mm -hmm. in this area we, we probably talked about this before at one point uh, large bodies of water whether they're they're lakes or they're oceans uh, act in many ways as temperature regulators right they they absorb um, they absorb heat from the sun and they radiate it back at night. One of the reasons that the diurnal shift is more is larger mm -hmm. in, in this area because there isn't that. Is that why a lot of the vineyards are closer to the river? Because it's the, that even that little bit of, of water is going to help with the yeah you know, with the, with the temperature. I, and or, I think historically yeah. too, with uh, I mean these are dry farm, but historically too, with irrigation was always helpful for for a lot of uh, growers because uh, as you get further out, you know, there's another one from from this area that we you know, get to work with called, um, which I think we tasted on the last one we did outside, uh, Bardos Romantica. That's further way up north um, in uh, an area called uh, Palomar de Corcos. And that's around a, like a, a thousand feet above sea level. And that's what they call the Forgotten Zone. So there's just nothing really grows there except really grapes. Um, and not a lot of grape growers are in that area because sure. uh, it's so challenging. So we're starting to get that stress on the vine. It's starting to become a little more challenging where this is located. But typically, closer to the river, it's going to be a little more generous. And, and even stylistically, um, I mean, we don't have the Pescara here today because I want to talk about this estate in particular. Mm -hmm. I just thought the Vinculo would be kind of a cool wine to, sure. to have fun about. But, um, because it is a little higher in elevation than the river banks and because it is a little more um, there's less of that influence the wines typically have a, a, a more angular structure um, they te typically tend to be a little not necessarily gamey but um, can be much much more powerful but also super lean because of the acidity in the wine 
So it's, it's interesting too because you talked about how people got um, the gentleman from, and I'll, I'll butcher his name, so I don't even try to say it, from Mega Sicilia, went to Bordeaux to learn. Mm -hmm. Kind of brought <clears> that <throat> back. I mean, Bordeaux's got a lot of water close yep. to it. Um, the, the soils are, are, are totally different. Uh, and I mean, it's rot is a problem in, in, in Bordeaux. Why? And well, no, it's not always a problem. Sometimes it's really good. <laughs> no, no more rot's fantastic. Yeah. Um, so why why do you think this region looked to Bordeaux as a you know as a not a model but something that you know they could, we want to learn from that region in particular when they're so different? That's a good question. Um, I mean, I think part of it. <coughs> I'm completely making this up because I don't not know the answer. But I, I'm I'm. Um, it's an hypothesis. I think just historically that area, and this was shortly after the 1855 classifications happened, so because mm -hmm. um, he was there in the 1860s, early 1860s, um, and Marcus Morietta did the same thing in the 1870s. You know, Bordeaux at that point was very different than Burgundy is, and um, it was about name recognition and it was about the chateau rather than the vineyard, sure. um, and so you know at that. At, that point in time, Bordeaux was what I think everybody was probably talking about in terms of wine. It's, it was the standard bearer, you know, still is in many ways today. But um, yeah, so my guess is that just to go to learn how they make prestigious wine. Um, but I think also understanding too that Tempranillo is an early ripening grape. It's it, it comes from the word temp, uh, temp, uh, temprano, which means early. Um, it's a grape that can have some. Uh, Kind of heady tannin, but oftentimes it's it's not an overly tannic grape. Um, it's not an overly alcoholic grape, which is actually why they would they blend oftentimes Grenache in Rioja because Grenache has a lot of alcohol to it, sure. um, and it's a grape that, that can have a lot of acid. But when it's grown here, I mean, I'm guessing that maybe they saw the potential of the structure of Cabernet Sauvignon, which is you know is a cool climate. Great. Sure. For some reason, it grows in every hot climate in the world. It's actually it is now officially the, the most planted varietal in the world. But um, but the climate of Bordeaux is is much more mild or challenging, right? And so maybe because it's challenge, the Tempranillo really struggles here as opposed to in Rioja um, or Navarra, that you know, they they started seeing the structure was similar to Cabernet Sauvignon, and then okay, well, let's learn to see what they do with it. I mean, that, I'm just guessing. Honestly, but but every time I have, to me, the structure of Ribera is much more like Bordeaux, and Rioja is more like Burgundy, even though they're different varietals completely. I, it's I, I I get it in the glass. Yeah. Right. You have those botanic structure, in particular. Uh, you know, it's the you're getting that drying sensation on your gums, mm -hmm. right? So that you get from any any tannic structure, but you're not getting that. Violent, hedonistic um, attack on your teeth and your tongue and your gums that makes the wine almost undrinkable when it's young. Yeah. And Bordeaux does get some of that in the higher upper echelon things, but when they tell you not to drink it for 20 years before yeah. you, you do it. Um, but you can get that in, in wines at this price point at this age. And Cab's a good example. You go someplace else in the New World, which we'll, we won't bash anyone, we'll, they'll, they'll remain nameless. The, there's almost no tannic structure, right? Yeah. It's, it's very soft. 
Um, and to have that, you know, I don't want to say chalky because I feel like that's a description that you kind of have to be really nerdy to, to fully get. But um, I don't think it's a bad description. I think. I, 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 I think it works. I just don't know if anyone's going to understand that when I say that they're jockey. Yeah. Um, but it's the it, they're there, they're present, and they're pleasant. Yeah. Um, as opposed to just being non-existent, which you get from a lot of those new worlds. That, that that's very Bordeaux to me. Yeah. That, that pleasant structure. Yeah, and um, you know, I just want to pop back a little bit when you mentioned jockey. There, these are some of the most diverse soils in. All of Spain. It's where they've counted like 39 different soil types within Rivera, mm -hmm. because you know you have the mountains, which create, uh, which are the colluvial soils, I think, where that's basically mountain runoff, and then you have, you know, the river coming through, which is much larger, you know, at a certain point, and then you know, millions of years ago, when Spain was created. It was basically an island. I've been waiting for this the entire time. Have you really? Gentlemen. Oh yeah, like he has not gone into you know different eras of, of soil creation. <laughs> I was waiting for it, and here it is. Okay, so, I'm sorry. Right, so Go ahead. when when Spain um, collided, or we say collided, but I mean it was a real slow process. When it when it came in contact with the Eurasian plate, um, it's created this uplift, which is what created um, the Pyrenees. But then that uplift created a down, what they call a downwork, almost like a like a graben that you would find in, in the, the Rhone, or, or in um, the Rhine and, and Alsace. It created this downwork, and at that point, the interior of most of Spain flooded with water, and up through what they call the Ebro Basin, which is Rioja, um, Rioja, Aragon, Navarra, up through Catalonia, and then La Mancha, and then also. Uh, Ribera, so that's why you see a lot of limestone here because it's typically like decomposed coral. Um, whereas more north in Bias Basco or in Galicia, it's a lot of granitic soils, um, more uh, slate and, and stony soils, where, where here it's like a limestone base. Um, but the soils here are like super, super diverse. And then, you know, you had obviously the mountains that were created, and when mountains are created and you have Earthquakes and the mountains break apart, and then you get canyons, or like in France, they call them combs. Um, and it's what makes, I think, even Burgundy such diverse soils. Because when we talk about Burgundy, it's clay and limestone. And you read every spec sheet, it's clay and limestone. Um, but when you actually look at where the vineyards are located, the best vineyards are by these little valleys that were created. And then the rivers eventually come through, and they're pulling all the soils from different geologic eras that go through. Um, Spain has basically every single soil type of every geologic era, era uh, in history. Um, you can fit Spain in the United States 30 times, and it has every single um, cl uh, climate that you would find in the United States other than like, you know, bayou. So, um, and this really kind of sits right in the center. Well, that's the north, but, but um, yeah, I lost my direction. That's all right. You, you, you were on a roll there for I know. For a I'm, I realized midway through, I'm like, okay, bring it home, Manny. Come on, just bring it home so we can tie it up into a nice little bow, and I didn't. He gets very excited when he's talking about soil and geological structures. He does. It's okay. Right. We all have our thing. Well, it's, but I mean, it, it's the heart of, of what makes his wine so amazing because, you know, Pescara is different, even though the winemaking style is the same. Uh, he has another, uh, El Vinculo, the Crianza is aged the same as here. Um, in La Mancha, because he does a, red, a Tempranillo there. 
the uh, uh, Desa Granja, which is this small estate he purchased in Toro. It's a declassified one, but um, it's all 100% Tempranillo. So they're, they're made the exact same way. <clears throat> and the wines are very different. Um, and I think that's what makes it so amazing because it is, you know, the climatic influence and it is the soil. And what I think is very brave about that <laughs> is that oftentimes when we talk about terroir, we'll talk about Burgundy. And uh, as the example, you know, every winemaker supposedly makes everything kind of the same, but every winery does it differently. Um, but there is kind of almost a, a very, that's what I'm looking for, a communal idea of what the wine should express. Um, and it's, it's how he approaches wine rather than, okay, this plot, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this, we're going to sure. do pump overs on this one, this one we're going to do semi-carbonic maceration, this one we're going to uh, age a large barrel. Um, no, it's like we're going to make it as a blanket and we're going to see why these are different and how they're different. Which is why I'm so excited about the next one, Vente Aldeas, which is a new project um, from them. It's from a part of their vineyard that are certified organic. Uh, as I mentioned, the winemaker is a young guy who has been able to convince the family to try something different uh, because they've always done things the exact same way. And so this is fermented in concrete egg, uh, which, you know, the shape and um, as for, because fermentation is a, a process um, and it's so like an endothermic, would that be the right word? Process where it starts to heat up naturally. Um, and as it heats up, you know, it's, there starts to become a motion and the egg shape is constantly moving around, makes the, the wine move around the barrel. Um, so it's like swirling in the glass, but then it's also unlined concrete. So you're getting the influence of the, of the oxygen um, integrating with the egg uh, without adding the influence of oak. So it's not just about fruit, you're letting it kind of aerate basically. But then instead of going into barrique, which is a, you know, a specific 225 liter barrels, specific size barrel, it goes into 400 liter foodras, these larger, um, larger, older oak barrels. And, um, and it changes dramatically, this 100% Tempranillo coming from the, the same estate, from the same family. Yow! I have to go to the dentist now. <laughs> like that, that's, again, they're, they're pleasant, but the tannins are much more present Yeah. on this one uh, than they were the Condotta Asa. Um, I mean, much more, much more present. Uh, yeah, and because it's, <coughs> it's age and food rep, and because in Rubino you have to age and bury mm -hmm. to care. It can be like literally a week or three months, or what they would call Hoven or Young Wine in Spain. Um, it cannot carry the name, like I mentioned with the Vinculo, every single region of Spain has its own little seal, its own little um, logo, if you will, you'll find in the back of the bottle. It cannot be called Rubino Duero, although it's coming from the region using the, the um, preferred grape 
Rubia has to be at least 75% Tempranillo. <coughs> you can blend other grapes in there, Cabernet, Grenache. There's actually a white grape called um, uh, Abelio Mayor, Abelio Mayor, that um, actually Folio carries, which I want to try to bring in because mm -hmm. it'll be one of the only wines, white wines from Rubia that you'll find in the United States. But um, uh, but because it, it's the vinification is different, the oak aging is different with a different type of barrel, it just is the Castillo which is the broader country sure. appellation. Um, but it's it's kind of an honor in many ways too of, of the history of the of the region. So in 1011 there was the uh, Reconquista or the, the reconquest of, of the Iberian Peninsula from the Moors, um, or at least in this part of Spain. Um, and uh, Asa is, a, is the village of Asa, so Canada de Asa is the Chateau of Asa. It was in the center of this, this um, province in Burgos, and there are about 20 villages around it, and so Aldeas' village, so it's like the 20 villages. So it's kind of um, the concept of the, that the, the reconnection of the region dating back to that, that area, and then this was the center of it. It's cool. And this is also a great example of how smaller is not better, necessarily. So we're trained in the Burgos for this, and the years of influences that the smaller the plot, or the more specific the place it comes from, and the more regulated the wine is, because they've, they've had you know uh, several centuries to come up with how to do things, that it must be better. You know, Batad Montrachet is always going to be better than Chassagne Montrachet or or whatnot. You yeah. know, um, you know, Pomar is always going to be better than than, than Cote de Bon, et cetera, et cetera. And you know, Cote de Bon will always be better than than Bourgogne in, in general. It can be true. You're going to have a different expression, a more finite expression of a certain place. Doesn't doesn't necessarily mean that the wine is going to be better or you get as much bang for your buck. This is, again, you just went through how this is Ribeiro de Loro in every sense of the imagination. It just breaks a couple of those rules for labeling. Yeah. It's every bit is good, but you won't necessarily think that way because, oh, well, it's the larger appellation, so. Yeah. Um, you know, like it's, it's for a California example, oh, this one says Napa on it, this one says North Coast, the Napa has to automatically be better. It might be, there's a good chance it will. But there are some killing North Coast cabs out there. Yeah. That just because they blend in a little too much of Lake County and they can't call it Napa. But it's still really good. Yeah. So it, it's not, that's why you have to try everything. Absolutely. And it's just like even aromatically, there's so, you know, the, um, the Crianza is, is much more, almost stemmier. Um, like there's something about the aromas that remind me of like when you're picking rosemary and, and and the, the smell of the rosemary, and you can smell the tannin, basically, of the rosemary bark. Um, you know, it's much more savory, I guess, and, and herbaceous, where the aldeas is much more fruit forward, but the tannins are, are really chewy. Yeah. I mean, you, you pick these wines, so the fact that you also did not pick like a charcuterie board to have with them over I, this is very disappointing. I, I know, I know. Well, here would be like a, a leg of land, like a. Uh, a baby lamb's leg that's slowly braised. That's the classic dish. And wh yeah. where is this leg of lamb? Or, or um, cochinillo, which is suckling pig, but that's like, 
that's that's when they bring out the whole the whole pig the whole pig and they cut they they don't cut it with a knife they take a plate mm -hmm. and they break it apart with the plate mm. because it's so soft yeah which I've never had before but that's my dream to so that sounds really at, at worst interesting yeah <laughs> it also sounds delicious but at worst it sounds interesting yeah it's super I was actually at a restaurant um, last week in in Worcester and they're gonna be doing a wine dinner actually featuring these wines um, three dinners in April because uh, they have three restaurants um, for the same concept a place called Bocado and um, I was having this uh, they pour by the glass and they had this um, conejo which is rabbit and it was just like a, a braised rabbit in a like a and almost like a soup or a stew so it was just within a broth like classic country dish very lightly seasoned um, and uh, <coughs> a very delicate flavor and I think sometimes with with um, cuisine oftentimes in the, with restaurants in the United States the um, the tendency is to like oversalt, oversaturate. I, like my wife and I are going out to dinner t tonight, and uh, thankfully we're going to a really nice place. But I'm always worried when she wants to go to restaurants because like there's gonna be so much salt, there's gonna be so much fat in the dish that no matter what I do to lose weight, we're gonna gain it back immediately. Immediately, like I can feel my ankle swelling, you know, like a pregnant woman. Um, and uh, this dish was so delicate. And and so like it wasn't under seasoned. It was just the season was very light. It was about the flavors of the broth, and and the mushrooms and the the, the carrots and the broth and the rabbit itself, and uh, it totally like something you would get in a country house or like a grandmother would cook, you know that like a, like a chicken soup kind of thing, and that awesome. with this wine was just like I mean super peanut butter and jelly. It was it was fantastic. That's awesome. And it was not. A, I mean, it definitely wasn't. It was like an eight dollar plate with a, a I mean, super reasonable like $12 glass pour. That's awesome. You know. At a restaurant now with inflation? With That's inflation, amazing. yeah. <laughs> That's why uh, it's why it's good to, to not always be in Boston and head out to the head out to, to places like Worcester once in a while because you find some really cool cool gems. Absolutely. This one this is it's it's not bit so it's almost uh, it's not a perfect comparison it's barolo ish in this sense the structure is massive right though the tannins massive mm -hmm. but the weight isn't it's not like it's not like having a gigantic cab where you're you know it, it's not it's not light bodied person I don't want to I don't want to go that far but the tannic structure almost doesn't match the the weight of the wine um, so if you're someone who always drinks, you know, cap, mm -hmm. and you're just used to kind of those things going hand in hand in some capacity, I think this might throw somebody off a little bit just because it, it, it's a, it's, for me, it's medium on the palate in terms of body, but the yep. tannic structure is, is high. Yeah. And that, you know, that, that I think Barolo, where that's that medium body on the, on the palate, but the tannin is just, yeah. Yeah, rich and powerful, you know, and um, but not overwhelming. Not everything overwhelming. else is still there. Yeah, everything else is still there. And I mean, these are both fourteen and a half percent. So mm -hmm. they're like, which I guess is now the new normal. But mm -hmm. um, 
But there, oftentimes what I find, especially in, and I'm not throwing shade in California at all, because you, you see it plenty in Spain, like in places like Cumilla, where they have Monastral, where it's like 15.5, and they're supposedly dry wines, but there's still residual sugar in sure. the wine. They're still sweet. Um, you know, these are pretty dry. And yeah. I think stylistically, that's always been the style of wine that they've, they've produced, that there's something rustic and beautiful and lean and muscular. Um, when I worked at this uh, Italian restaurant years ago, I was talking to the sommelier at the time about my take on the difference between old world and new world <coughs> full-bodied wines. And that in the new world, the wines are kind of like rustlers. They're kind of like big, um, yeah, maybe muscular, but definitely a little more, um, you know, I don't know, I mean, it, in the majority of it, like a little more body fat on them. And they're big because they're just big guys, whatever. Um, you know, but less toned and full-bodied wines in Europe are like gymnasts. You know, that they might not look huge, but they're just kind of toned and, and um, what I imagine a little more, a little bit more of what I look like when I'm at the beach. Absolutely. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. That makes sense because I would never have guessed that was 14 and a half based on the weight. Yeah. On the, on the palate. I would never have guessed that. And alcohol is supposed to be the determinant, right? Yeah. We went over this once, you know, tw over 12 is supposed to be full-bodied, full body, which we, we, that really has to be changed now. Yeah. It really does. Yeah. I think I, I think even like 13 is now medium body. And I think this is like 14 and a half, 15. That's when we should really start talking about full-body wines. And this is, I think, on the cusp of that. Yeah. I, can, I can't think of five wines that I've had that were not intentionally left sweet that were under 12. I had, I had one kind of geeky wine from um, from Savoie that was like 11 points. Tyrol Semyon. That's 11, 11%, 11.5%. Okay. I think that's the only one I, I can think of. So I've had that. So, okay, so, so we got two. Yeah. But everything, <laughs> but, but everything else is, I, even, even Burgundy now, they're, even in cool yeah. vintages, they're richer. Mm -hmm. it, it's... We're gonna have to shift that so that it's yeah. It, it starts here. You, we've you're on notice, everyone that uh, is still calling twelve and a half percent full body. Stop. So when double. it actually shifts in lexicon at the WSET and at you know the Wine Scholar Guild and all these really fancy organizations, it's because we it's because we sent it here first. <laughs> <laughs> We're taking full credit for it right now before it happens. Awesome. Sweet. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, these are these are, um, you know, I mean, these are delightful, is what they are. Yeah, yeah, and you know, I thought about because I was gonna pull like the Reserva from Pescara <clears throat> as a bottle to bring, or even their Crianza. Um, but I was like, no, I want to like Condado de Asa still is kind of Pescara is known. Uh, when I first moved to Boston in '99 and was really getting into wine, it was first introduced to the wines. When you'd walk through a Spanish section, there was always the same. It was the same wines every single store. Pescara was one of them. Muga was one. Um, uh, Rioja Alta was another. Um, and maybe like two or three other little producers. Um, the same two or three uh, Albariños, and that was it. Um, and unfortunately, well, f fortunately, Spain has kind of exploded. And uh, I feel like every restaurant 
but that has an international wine list should always have something Spanish on the, on the menu. Absolutely. But one option. And if you're not sure if it's going to sell, you know, people don't really, so, okay, then don't go for the obscure. Go for either Rioja that everyone recognizes or wine that is labeled as Tempranillo. And sure. people will buy it. Um, you know, you don't have to like go to all the funky little appellations, but um, but I think it's I think it's important to have and to represent I think a fully rounded wine menu. But um, you know, in terms of retail, in terms of, of restaurants, there's more and more wine out there than it's ever been. Um, some just random labels that are just created. Some are historic labels that have been around for centuries. Um, but the shelf space is exactly the same. You know, like the stores that I shop at now are stores that many of them I shopped at, you know, 20 years ago. And you walk through and maybe all the wines are different, but the amount of space they have for Spanish wines, it's still the same eight spots. Sure. And they'll always say, oh man, we're cranking it. Like these wines, that section just moves really fast. Maybe you should extend it. Well, you know, it's Spain. I don't know how busy it's going to be. You just said that it's cranking and you can't keep the wines in stock. So expand it. And I think like where these wines really sit well are kind of more of those, the newer retail stores that you see that are smaller, that are independent, that aren't pigeon held to like a region. Sure. Um, I think that's that's kind of almost an antiquated way of having your store or walking through the cab section or walking through, I think we talked about this with like Malbec um, or Argentina, like walking through the cab section, walking through, and then there's Cab, there's Merlot, there's Pinot Noir, but then there's Burgundy and Bordeaux, you know, and Argentina and, and Chile and, and whatever in Spain but they might be sharing the same varietals. Sure. Um, there's a really cool store in Boston, um, Urban Grape, and what TJ does is he does everything by body. So he may be thinking, okay, I have enough Spain or I have enough California or you know, I could really use something from Argentina because I don't have something. Um, but it's not gonna sit in a section that no one's gonna go to. It's gonna sit in a flavor profile. Sure. So when someone's walking by, like I really want something full body, I'm, I'm, you know, just having some charcuteries, something light, simple and fresh, you know, you can find something that you've never had before um, because you actually, it's designed to kind of be that way rather than, I always drink cabs, so I'm just going to go down that aisle, Sure. you know, and um, I feel like there just seems to be a complete change in how, it's another thing we're changing right here. This here we go. Second. Yeah. It's done. More Tempranillo on menus, more Spain on menus, and... Um, retail stores so how you can tell this white wine is banging I went back to it after that <laughs> and not only can I taste it it's holding up just fine the the leftover tannic the you know residuals are not destroying this for that I cannot enjoy it it's just as good as it was before amazing that's uh, that's one <laughs> white. so should we uh, lead out with a little more mm. uh, black hummus all right, this is Black Lumas and their song Colors, which actually, just quickly, <coughs> um, are you familiar with Playing for Change? Yes. So they did a cover, uh, they did this song. They had like, musicians from all over the world, for those that don't know what Playing for Change is. Uh, it's a group of musicians all over the world that are just listening to maybe a click track um, and maybe a bass recording of a song. And then there's like, some guy in Botswana is playing 
um, you know, the djembe, someone in Portugal <coughs> is playing like a lute, someone in, in um, Argentina or Papua New Guinea is playing a flute, like, and they take popular songs, like um, there was one a war from uh, Bob Marley, No More Trouble, that was just incredible. Um, and so they did that with this. And so there are people all over the world playing different parts with uh, both Adrian um, playing the, the main rhythm guitar and, and Eric Burton singing it, but uh, Slash has a solo on it, which is nice. really, really cool. But, all right, until next time, Jokers. There we go. Oh, I, hold on, hold on. I had um, the volume down, so let me turn it up so we do it official. Let's try this again. All right. Have you ever heard of playing for change? <laughs> <laughs>